If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Welcome, everybody, to And Security for All. Um, I am Jonathan Kimmett. I am uh, here. Uh, I'm guest hosting today. I'm really excited for our interview guest. Um, Kim is, wasn't able to make it, so she asked if I could take her place on this one, and I, I jumped at the chance. I was really excited about um, uh, meeting Dr. Ilya Kolochenko. Kolochenko. I knew I was going to mess up his name, and I apologize for that. Um, hopefully, um, we're, this is a great topic. This is uh, specifically talking about um, law enforcement and uh, hacking into uh, systems and or getting data from systems, whether it be cloud services, whether it be devices, whether it be um, services that we provide. So I think it's going to be a really great topic today. Uh, you can find us at any of the Voice America uh, online websites. Uh, so make sure you check us out for any past episodes. You can also find us on your favorite podcast um, venues. And uh, if you have any uh, any questions for us, you know, please make sure you uh, post them. I know that this is uh, going to be a pre-recorded session, but you know, we're we're happy to to reach back out afterward and answer any questions that you may have. So, I would like to invite our guest today, Dr. Ilya Kolochenko. Um, he is founder of Immune Web. Um, I wasn't quite prepared to say that. I saw it and I was about to read it. Um, I'm going to have him introduce himself. He's got a, a he's got a huge uh, background and experience. Uh, does some great things. And I believe I, I saw on the uh, on LinkedIn you were also you've been awarded CEO of the year by Cybersecurity Excellence Awards in 2023. So, uh, Dr. Kolochenko, please uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for uh, having me here today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, probably as a very brief introduction, my name is Ilya. I'm the uh, chief architect and uh, founder of UniWeb. We are a global application security company headquartered in Geneva, uh, but we're serving enterprise customers in more than 50 countries. And uh, briefly about myself, I've been in cybersecurity for more than 15 years, mostly practicing in uh, penetration testing, uh, digital forensics, so any tech questions are more than welcome. Uh, we'll probably be talking about different uh, privacy and cybersecurity legislation on uh, this uh uh, on this call today. Uh, important disclaimer from uh, my side, it will not be a legal advice. So if you are looking for a legal advice, please talk to your lawyer. Uh, here is just you know, private friendly discussion that will try to make as fun as possible. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. You know, I always recommend that people go and talk to the general counsel. Number one, to find out those specific things. But number two, go build those relationships with your general counsel, your external counsel, because when you have a friend in those offices, it makes a huge difference in us being able to do our jobs. So let me ask you, uh, Ilya, if you, uh, 
you've got a, a huge variety of background. I, I was checking out your bio up on LinkedIn and a few other places. I mean, you've got background in law in the United States. You've got a background in law in terms of uh, several different countries. Kind of give us a background on that. You know, how did you, what's your, what's your education background? You know, you've got a lot of stuff here. Again, from the U.S., you've got stuff, I think, from Scotland and there are a few others. So kind of give us that background there. Uh, so, uh, to cut the long story short, uh, I'm currently pursuing my fourth master degree in law at uh, George Mason University in the United States. Uh, my first bachelor degree was actually in computer science, so I've been doing most of the technical things, but like about eight years ago, I understood that uh, we would probably have a lot of, you know, synergy between legislation and cybersecurity. And actually, this is exactly what we are observing today, that uh, many industries are becoming heavily regulated in terms of uh, cybersecurity, data protection, privacy, uh, reporting and disclosure of data Uh which has different type of incidents. So uh, I really enjoy uh, doing my own research, uh, how we can uh, help our customers and our partners, not just to uh, protect their systems, uh, but also to ensure that they actually uh, comply with the applicable law and many different regulations because, you know, uh, doing business in one country and saying we don't care about any foreign laws is uh, not a best practice anymore in 2023. So even if you uh, say that, listen, we have 90% of our customers based in New York or Illinois, and we don't care about, you know, uh, European Union and their legislation, it may be a risky practice. I'm not saying that this is like uh, uh dangerous per se, because if you have no presence whatsoever in foreign countries, uh, it may be fine, but I would say in 2023, it would be hard to find a, even a medium-sized company that uh, has no clients abroad, and many countries, they've uh, recently enacted fairly tough legislation saying, even if you have one single customer from our country, if you're handling any uh, personal data, financial data from our country, from our land, from our citizens, from our residents, you must comply with our legislation as well. And we see that now penalties for non-compliance are becoming really harsh. And uh, uh, we recently observed that non-compliance with uh, law can uh, trigger criminal penalties for uh, CISOs. So uh, I would uh, probably say that uh, in 2023, we'll see even uh, more security incidents that will trigger severe consequences for uh, C-level executives. And uh, uh, I would say this is why I enjoy studying both cybersecurity and cyber law. Absolutely. And I would say it also includes any decision makers you have in the organization. So it might even go down, you know, not only the C-level, but system administrators or, you know, network infrastructure people or anybody that may have access to systems or make decisions on systems that contains data of individuals could be wrapped up. You know, a lot of the privacy laws that we're seeing, um, it does have that, you know, those those qualifications in there that you will protect that data. And if someone makes the decision 
to do something that may reduce the security or reduce the privacy, they could be held individually accountable for that. You know, there's a, a lot of pieces out there for that. So I think it's, you know, we have a, a, I know we have a wide variety of audience members. You know, we have everything from C-level and executive leadership all the way down to uh, individual technicians. And I want to make sure that they understand that, you know, as a community, as an industry, we all have those responsibilities to maintain the the privacy and security of the data that we have. And it's not just the data. You, you know, we have a lot of uh, systems that may have uh, some sort of confidential data, but we also have life safety systems, you know, systems that, you know, whether it be in hospitals or card access systems, you know, HVAC systems, anything like that, that may otherwise have a negative effect on someone. Those individuals could be held responsible for the decisions they make. So absolutely. Let me ask you, you know, you, you've been doing this a, a long time, you have a, you know, a wide variety of experiences. What have you seen in the last, let's say, 10 years have been the change of, you know, 15, 20 years ago, this idea of CISOs kind of came around and really became really popular in organizations. And I would say probably that 10 years ago, the idea of that privacy officer or the DPO started, you know, emerging as someone as priority in an organization in terms of making decisions. Um, what have you seen in the last, say, 10 years that, in terms of the changes of security and privacy that you really want to highlight? So that's a great question, and probably I will uh, have a long answer, but uh, let me start from the beginning. I would say that uh, I definitely observe uh, a lot of uh, attention you know, that we pay now to privacy and data protection, and I believe that this is a very good trend because uh, I would argue that uh, properly implemented privacy controls, they are beneficial for business owners. Uh, for example, if you don't store necessary personal data, uh, you will have less data stolen if you have a data breach. Okay? When you implement holistic controls and audits uh, in your company, uh, to control who can access uh, personal data of your customers, you will uh, significantly reduce, you know, uh, data, uh, data uh, <laughs> by insiders. So, uh, likewise, if you have, you know, uh, a comprehensive program to handle, to process, to store, and to securely delete your data, uh, you'll have no problems to comply with different requests you may be receiving from your customers, for example, right to be forgotten, okay? You'll also have, you know, clear uh, visibility where actually your data is stored, you know, potentially reducing the challenge and the problem of shadow IT and, you know, countless third-party managed systems, right? So I believe that a properly implemented and uh, managed uh, privacy protection program um, can uh, bring a lot of value to the company and actually prevent or at least significantly reduce many kind of preventable data breaches. Uh, then I would uh, also say that uh, on the other hand, we have a lot of confusion because uh, we see that many countries are actively legislating on uh, different uh, interconnected topics, you know, from AI to IoT security. And that's definitely, uh, I would say, socially desirable trend. 
but when you have a new law being introduced every week in a jurisdiction where you actually do business, uh, things become uh, ungovernable and unmanageable. So I believe that governments uh, should perhaps consider more consolidation and conformity because when they are actively uh, enacting uh, new laws, they actually making uh, compliance a very heavy burden. And I believe that if the trend of over-regulation persists, we'll see many uh, businesses of all sizes, you know, that will eventually say, listen, it's so expensive, time-consuming and burdensome to comply with this, you know, uh, complex, you know, stack of laws and regulations that we, we prefer to pay fines, you know, then to complying with everything because it's just a nightmare. So I would say that privacy, data protection uh, is definitely good. However, uh, we shall be prudent not to uh, fall into this, you know, uh, spiral of over-regulation where compliance uh, doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, you know, one of the things that is interesting is when we look at technology, um, technology progresses really quickly. Um, and, and, you know, the, the new technologies, new systems, new services that are out there, they come in very quickly. Laws, regulations, that takes time. That takes time of getting passed, getting understood and getting passed. So when we look at AI, you know, this is one of the things. Um, and, and I would love to, you know, talk with you at some point in the future, maybe another show about the whole, the whole idea of AI and as it relates to automated processing with things like GDPR or some of the other uh, privacy regulations. Because when you start putting in AI, that self-contained processing that AI does, how does that meet? you know, the, the, the definition of automated processing. So anyway, that's something that I would love to ask you about in the future, maybe on another show. But it is really interesting because as, you know, yeah, here in the United States, we are looking at privacy laws that are very secretarial around, you know, the different industries, you know, with higher education, healthcare, um, finance. Um, a lot of state laws are coming into place for privacy um, where, you know, the industry is kind of hoping that there is a GDPR-like law that comes out under the federal regulations. Um, so those sorts of things are happening, but we're still, we're still growing in that. We're still learning in that. And with that comes a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding, uh, a lot of technology, and a lot of enforcement that needs to be put into place before we can actually have those things effective in, in the United States. And I think that this kind of happening that way across the, uh, the world is, is countries are implementing the privacy laws or implementing the privacy concepts of you know, transparency, right to be forgotten, you know, things like that. They may not necessarily know how to implement that fully with all of their systems. And the individual decision makers in the organization certainly don't know how to implement that. And I think that really leads into the, the question of the show is when we're talking about law enforcement, uh, criminal investigations, um, the idea of privacy to an extent and, and actually from a technical point of view, I I implement protections on systems that I manage, you know, for organizations that actually makes, in some cases, criminal investigations harder. 
you know, because I want to encrypt devices. I want to make sure that they're not allowed to be gotten in access of someone who's a malicious actor or whatever. But that is very specific, is very specifically affecting how law enforcement may be able to get access to that device. So just from a broad point of view, what's your thoughts on privacy versus that law enforcement access to data? So that's <clears throat> that's a very hot topic in 2023, and I think it will uh, become even hotter in the uh, upcoming uh, weeks, months, and years. Uh, because uh, on one side, uh, we need to enable our law enforcement agencies to investigate uh, serious crime efficiently, rapidly, and effectively. On the other side, we need to ensure conformity with due process, constitutional rights, privacy protection, because I don't think that anyone uh, will be excited to know that his or her local sheriff can easily access uh, you know, his or her uh, Facebook account, just you know, uh, thinking about preventing potential crime in the account, right? On the other right. hand, I don't think that anyone will be happy to learn that dangerous terrorists uh, cannot be apprehended and will continue their nefarious activities because law enforcement are precluded from hacking into their uh, cell phones or computers uh, and that they are abusing and exploiting privacy protection regimes saying, no, you can't seize this and we'll not give you our passwords. So we really need to find a fair balance, okay? And uh, actually, I spent four amazing years at Capital Technology University researching on this, this uh on this uh, stack of topics where we're talking about, you know, uh, criminal investigation, uh, privacy, law enforcement, duties and rights to conduct lawful hacking in order to get, you know, some uh, important evidence uh, when investigating serious uh, crime. Um, and 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 uh, it was my doctoral research on this topic. So, we have to consider many interconnected uh, topics. Uh, for example, uh, when we have uh, an innocent third party that is accidentally or tangentially impacted by a law enforcement investigation, for example, uh, you know, you have your website, you know, being a small company, you have a website hosted. Uh, in the cloud and uh, law enforcement officers accidentally uh, disrupted for half an hour while investigating, you know, some uh, serious uh, crime uh, activities, you know, renting the very same cloud and some and, and somehow, you know, uh, disrupting your small website. Do they need to notify you about this? Because on one side, it can uh, appear to be like uh, self-evident that if law enforcement cause some even small, you know, intangible damage, they should be accountable. But on the other side, you know, you never know whether the person who suffers, you know, even a very uh, small harm, that he or she will will not start an active campaign on Facebook saying, listen, feds hacked into my cloud and they actually disrupted my e-commerce website for uh, 30 minutes and uh, this is uh, anti-constitutional and illegal. So 
uh, we have a lot of complex questions or, for example, when we are dealing with uh, cloud servers or cloud systems or managed systems uh, residing in the cloud, this is a very uh, complex matter in terms of jurisdiction because you may have servers physically hosted in the United States, but the company operating them may be incorporated in the UK. The managing company that is actually doing IT support and technical stuff can be incorporated in Switzerland, for example. So every time law enforcement officers are knocking to a door saying we need the data and we have a court order, they will uh, say, oh, listen, it's actually not our company that is responsible for sharing the data. Please talk to uh, another company. So it is becoming a, a, a really complex and inefficient and time-consuming process. Uh, like a decade ago, it was kind of operational, but in 2023, uh, not anymore. And uh, I would say what we are observing at Immuniweb, uh, because we do a lot of interesting things like... Uh, dark web monitoring, and we observe that actually you now the uh, traditional notion of dark web uh, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and when you are really dealing with uh, organized cyber crime groups, they're trying to hide their online platforms, marketplaces, chats, however we call them. And uh, frequently, they're just you know, lawfully renting space at AWS, uh, GCP, Microsoft Azure, they leverage the full power of encryption and nobody is actually suspecting that uh, they are buying and selling uh, terabytes of stolen data uh, in a, a public cloud environment. And it's becoming, you know, really challenging to investigate such type of uh, crimes because they do not advertise their presence. We, of course, have, you know, I'd say maybe several hundreds of well-known hacking forums, marketplaces where you can purchase stolen data from ransomware gangs. But I would say the most interesting uh, stuff is actually happening, you know, uh, behind the stores and people who are selling or buying data there, they are not looking for any uh, advertising. They are not looking for external parties. And the question is how to investigate all this. Uh, Same is applicable now to traditional crime because I would uh, argue that cyber crime investigation perhaps is an isolated topic. Uh, and uh, you have many of subtleties uh, in relation to investigation of cyber crime specifically. But traditional crime, traditional organized crime like drug trafficking, human trafficking uh, uh, is also shifting to uh, internet. And uh, they also, you know, using the power of readily available uh, strong communicate, uh, uh, strong encryption enabled by default and by design, and actually without compromising their devices, just by seizing logs, backups, evidence, you'll not get anything. So law enforcement agencies really need to have. A fairly flexible power to penetrate remotely and stealthy into uh, devices of suspected uh, 
uh, of suspected criminals. Uh, we obviously talk about serious crime only, okay, but without uh, providing our law enforcement agencies with their uh, lawful power to hack, uh, we'll probably end up being, you know, uh, unable to investigate like 90% of crimes, and uh, this may become a very uh, undesirable situation for uh, our society. Yeah, you know, we we see that. I see that here. You know, my previous employment, you know, with the university, we would submit things to local law enforcement, and the moment it was on a server outside the state or even outside the country, you know, they were basically like, "Well, we can't do anything." You know, it's there's nothing here for us to to investigate. Um, so, I mean, it is certainly a problem. I guess a question on that. Well. My first question is, you know, let's talk about attribution. You know, that's one of the things, you know, when in the cybersecurity realm, you know, we talk about hack back. And I know it's slightly different than talking about the law enforcement side, but we talk about this idea of hacking back. You know, if someone is hacking you, do you have the right to hack back? And the question, I always try to get the question over to not whether or not hacking back is legal or not, because that's a different issue, but how can you provide true attribution that that computer may have been attacking you or that may have been the one they were using or it could have been a pivot point or you know a redirect or a variety of things so kind of what's what are your thoughts about you know attribution of if law enforcement sees a device sees an account sees a web service whatever it may be what do you think the process of attribution needs to be to ensure that they're going after the correct website, the correct server, correct service, which will hopefully otherwise get them to the actual criminal? Uh, that's actually uh, a very complicated question, and perhaps you need to uh, shed some light on different aspects. Um, we observe that now uh, criminals start actively using different anti-forensic tools. For example, uh, you you have ready to uh, use tools that will purposely inject into your machine uh, millions of artifacts. Okay, for example, different logs evidencing that you've been browsing websites with child pornography, different, you know, uh, traces of illicit payments, uh, presence on thousands of, you know, uh, dark web forums, selling, buying drugs, and so on. Uh, the idea is simple, that once law enforcement officers uh, get your device into their forensic lab, they will probably say that this person uh, managed to uh, sell, you know, as many drugs as uh, the entire cartel of Pablo Escobar. You know, so when 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 you come with one million crimes, you know, against one person, probably the judge will uh, ask you to leave the court, right? So 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 so, so uh, we see that uh, criminals. Sure. Are are becoming perfidiously smart, you know, they are uh, purposely, you know, uh, uh, flooding their devices, you know, with uh, fake logs. So actually it's very difficult to understand, you know, which transaction out of 10 million, you know, online transactions is 
is a real one, so attribution is becoming challenging. Yeah. Then same, you know, when you are investigating remote intrusions, that's probably a slightly uh, different topic, but I would say uh, attribution in cybercrime is a time-consuming and uh, resource-consuming process because, for example, what we observe on the dark web that we have several cybercrime gangs that are purposely selling access to compromised networks and devices of law enforcement agencies. Frequently, it will be nothing really interesting like small county sheriff's computer, but they sell it to be eventually used as proxies because, you know, afterwards, uh, for example, if you're dealing with, uh, uh, I'd say, a a financial company that may be doing some nasty things to their customers and their cybersecurity folks detect an intrusion, but they say, well, listen, we've been hacked, but apparently this is our state police. So maybe we are being investigated, you know, and we shall not report this incident. We shall not do anything, you know, so... Attribution is becoming a very complex task, and I think that we'll see more and more incidents where different governmental agencies, including law enforcement agencies, are purposely compromised in order to be used as proxies, because when you say that law enforcement agency uh, is hacking your network, you'll probably think twice before hacking back, investigating, complaining, or uh, taking legal action. Right. Absolutely. You know, it, it, it's the same thing is, you know, CISA over here in the United States, you know, they have a new, uh, a new process uh, called Cirquia. I think that's how you say it, but it's basically if you had a cyber event that you need to report it to CISA within a certain time frame, And the idea is simple. I mean, I believe it is. It's there needs to be an understanding of what kind of events are happening you know, in critical infrastructure areas so that we can kind of get a, 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 at least a broad view of how many ransomware attacks, how many of these, how many of these, how many of these. Because right now there is no requirement, unless you have a specific compliance that you have to meet, there is no requirement to report some of that stuff. But if we don't know how big the issue is, we don't really understand kind of the controls we need to implement. However, I think you're absolutely right. When we start talking about... um you know, it's an arms race. And when we kind of know this from a cybersecurity perspective, as we implement one control or one requirement, then the attackers and the malicious individuals are going to go, okay, well, we're just going to change the process in this. And I could definitely see them, you know, they may, you may only have one compromised machine in that sheriff's network, but now they have to report it. Now you have to investigate it. Now you have to, it starts engaging these resources over and over again. That's going to tie up a lot of the processes in which, you know, let's say uh, organizations that have limited resources, they may not be able to investigate it. But the idea from the attacker's point of view could be kind of an internal denial of service attack by just saying, hey, Funk, we touched your machine. Now you have to go report it. Now you have to start the investigation. Now you have to engage your cyber insurance. Now you have to do this. That's that's going to be painful for them. Um, so I could see it very quickly that, you know, kind of outside of the attribution question, just the fact that that is an available attack to tie up resources 
could be something the attackers begin using uh, just as part of their process to cover their tracks doing something else. Absolutely, yeah. So, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about encryption. We talked about this a little bit before the show, um, but this is a major issue. I know that a few years ago we had the issue of um, the FBI was trying to get access to uh, an iPhone, and they reached out to Apple and asked to get access to the iPhone. They did a lot of these different things, um, and that's actually something that we talk about in the industry. You know, such as you know when you have a, a device, you know if you if you use a PIN code or a passcode as opposed to your fingerprint or face ID, you know, there are some requirements and non-requirements of whether or not law enforcement can make you unlock that phone, you know, with something like a, a PIN code. But that really does come into, you know, I tell organizations to make sure all of their devices are encrypted and to make sure that they're using a passcode and make sure that there's a requirement for the containers for organizational data, even on bring your own devices. Um, but those sorts of things that has absolutely a direct effect on law enforcement's ability to get data off of that phone. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? What, what, what is the kind of the compromise there or kind of what is the, how should we be moving forward with the ability of allowing law enforcement to be able to do the job we need them to do to keep us safe versus implementing security controls on devices to protect the data that's on those devices? So I'd probably say that we certainly need uh, encryption and we certainly need to preserve integrity of encryption because, you know, since decades, you know, we had... Uh, Every year, probably, we had suggestions calling uh, to regulate encryption and to, and to implement mandatory backdoors uh, that would be accessible to law enforcement agencies. I believe that this is a very bad idea because sooner or later, uh, these backdoors uh, will be compromised by cyber threat actors and uh, our economy our state secrets, everything will be compromised. So I believe that introducing mandatory backdooring is a very bad idea. And uh, uh, with that being said, unfortunately, we arrived to a kind of point of no return because today, if you have an up-to-date iPhone with the most recent software, most recent hardware, and you follow all the best practices, Basically, for law enforcement agencies, it's a brick, okay? I'm not talking about some very uh, high-profile agencies that have zero-day uh, exploits for the most recent firmware, but most state agencies will not be able to do anything with your iPhone, for example. Uh, unless in uh, the next uh, few months or year there will be a, an exploitable vulnerability, but it may be far too late. So uh, my idea and my vision is that law enforcement uh, agencies should be specifically authorized to perform lawful hacking because, for example, instead of trying to decrypt someone's iPhone, they may try to compromise remote systems, okay? Uh, of course, when we are dealing with uh, 
organized uh, crime, they will probably not be using WhatsApp. Okay, they will highly likely have their own uh, encrypted ecosystem, their own servers. And this is something that law enforcement uh, may wish to compromise, to take control in order to understand what the bad guys are talking about, what they're planning, and so on. Uh, we may also consider several I'd say, alternatives. For example, uh, several European countries, they have a separate uh, criminal offense uh, uh, that is punishable by a fairly small uh Penalty, I guess, up to uh, three years in, uh, in 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 prison when you refuse to give your password to a law enforcement agency from your iPhone, from your tablet, from your uh, laptop. The problem is that uh, you know serious uh, crime. They will uh, certainly prefer. I mean, members of uh, organized crime, they will certainly prefer, you know, to spend three years in jail saying, okay, I'll take a break, uh, then uh, giving a password and eventually end up uh, spending next 30 years in jail. So I believe that mandatory disclosure, you know, uh, is not something that uh, may bring a lot of results because it can be, you know, misused against uh, innocent citizens uh, and when uh, prosecuting uh, fairly insignificant crimes and incidents. But against organized crime, I don't think that members of gangs will be impressed by one, two or three year uh, prison sentence and they will prefer to keep the password confidential, spend some time behind the bars, and uh, that's it. So I think lawful hacking by law enforcement agencies, including interception by hacking, okay, including backdooring of the devices uh, from remote, okay, this is the uh, most, uh, uh, I would say, efficient option to ensure that on one side we protect encryption, we make sure that encryption is uh, being used for good. But on the other side, when uh, threat actors and uh, organized crime uh, is uh, abusing encryption to hide, to conceal their uh, criminal activities, law enforcement uh, will be able to get hands on their data by using lawful hacking techniques. Yeah, and that's... Um... Yeah, it kind of comes back to the attribution question, you know, how do we know those devices really are the individuals? And I think that's one of the questions that come up. Let me ask you, from a point of view of a law enforcement officer who wants to do that, or an agency, you know, let's kind of keep it broader, but an agency who wants to do that, what do you think, do we have the approval processes right now, or what do you think the approval process should be in terms of having a court order, a judge's permission, you know, grand jury, that sort of thing? What do you think that permission to be able to do that sort of hacking back would look like, you know, moving into the future? So uh, <clears throat> I would say that uh, depending on uh, the jurisdiction legislation may uh, be very different. Uh, we have some countries where no court order is required at all. Uh, 
we also have countries where uh, you uh, must uh, get a court order and it may take up to a few days. Okay, so uh, I would argue that uh, public prosecutor office uh, shall have the authority to grant the permission to break into remote systems. And uh, this order need to be subsequently validated by a court. And for example, you know, if later on, you know, because we uh, frequently deal with emergencies where it's Saturday evening and you will unlikely get a court order in a timely manner and you need to uh, hack into remote system right now, right here to save uh, someone's life, okay? But you cannot do this because you need a court order and it will take at least several hours and so on. So I guess that if we have a public prosecutor in charge of the case, uh, he or she gives a green light, that's perfectly enough just, you know, to make sure to avoid, you know, uh, kind of unbridled hacking by law enforcement where, you know, uh, everyone will be hacked, including for speeding offenses on the highway uh, to ensure that, uh, you know, lawful hacking by uh, law enforcement agencies remains under control and is subject to independent audit and uh, judicial oversight. Uh, we need to have this order of uh, a public uh, prosecutor to be uh, ratified later on by a judge. Okay, it can it can take one week or two weeks. It doesn't really matter because afterwards, if the court says that no, uh, this uh, order to break into remote system violates constitutional rights, vi violates applicable law, whatsoever else. Uh, you may simply have a provision saying all the data, all the evidence, all the intelligence obtained during this operation that has not been uh, validated and ratified must be securely deleted and must not be used against the suspect. Okay, so I believe that we don't need to create a necessary high standard that only upon a court order, you know, you can break into a remote system because it will uh, merely, uh, you know, make the process inefficient and slow. But uh, we uh, obviously need, you know, a judicial oversight to make sure that we will not have, you know, uh, arbitrary hacking by law enforcement. Right, absolutely, and I guess the, the the next natural question is, you know, because we talked about it earlier about having, you know, it may be coming from, you know, anywhere, you know, maybe come from any machine on the internet, which is, you know, any country, any network in the world. What about when it comes to that remote system is behind a, or it's it's at a jurisdiction that is not controlled by that law enforcement agency. So it's maybe it's a, in a different country or in a different network that is otherwise well beyond your regular access. What is that, that enforcement and or jurisdictional issue with doing those sorts of things? This is a very complex question uh, because, for example, what happens uh, when, for example, U.S. law enforcement agency is uh, breaking into a 
European company that is providing, I don't know, hosting and infrastructure to an organized uh, crime group? This is a very complex question, both in terms of, you know, uh, uh, legal consequences it may have locally in the European country in question, as well as, you know, a lot of problems in terms of international law, because you cannot just, you know, uh, uh, do whatever you want in a foreign jurisdiction. It will be, it will likely be a violation of international law. And uh, we also have many uh, legal scholars who argue that, uh, you know, uh, cyber operations uh, is, is, is actually a very uh, subtle topic because sometimes, you know, uh, when you have, for example, a, a criminal gang operating from France, for example, and have their presence and their infrastructure in France and they're physically located in France and uh, many of their victims are also located in France, uh, in this case, for example, a British law enforcement agency must certainly collaborate with their French colleagues in order to perform any hacking and uh, any uh, uh, offensive cyber, um, uh, let's say, operations without uh, permission from French authorities will be a violation of international law. However, on the other side, if... Uh, you know, American uh, criminals are just renting, you know, uh, cloud uh, space of an American company, but the data center in question is physically located in France, okay, it shall not be, uh, you know, a violation of international law when uh, U.S., law enforcement agencies are breaking into remote server that actually physically hosted in France, but, you know, French government, French state has absolutely no interest to prosecute or to investigate this crime because it has no relation whatsoever with the country. And uh, the only uh, nexus is that uh, American criminals are hosting, you know, their data in France, uh, but actually everything is uh, owned and operated by an American company. In this case, it shall be permitted, but I would say as of today, there is no clear-cut answer uh, to the question of how to organize uh, offensive operations while investigating and prosecuting serious crime on the Internet. I would probably say the best option that is unfortunately not always accessible is to collaborate with the foreign country, but this is possible, for example, between states like Australia, uh, UK, uh, maybe some European countries. But if you are trying to go in a, a far away foreign jurisdictions, they may just be super slow. I'm not even talking about, you know, hostile jurisdictions that will purposely refuse any collaboration with the U.S., right? I'm just talking about small countries, you know, uh, developing countries that simply cannot, uh, you know, 
invest into their cyber law enforcement agencies that have a very small units dedicated to managing, you know, offensive operations in their cyberspace. So sometimes, you know, collaboration is a real challenge. And uh, uh, unfortunately, I don't see a simple solution because we do have Budapest Convention. Uh, it has been here for uh, many years, but still, uh, many countries, uh, parties to the convention, they still haven't implemented all the provisions or they have implemented them, but in a, a peculiar you know, way. And we also have uh, some states that disagree over certain provisions, how to collaborate, how to implement certain processes internally in their home countries. So um, now we're also talking about a global treaty on uh, prosecution of cybercrime. Unfortunately, I don't think that it will provide a sustainable solution because uh, especially in 2023, I would say the uh, year of political, economic, financial turbulence Unless all countries, all states, uh, you know, uh, agree to collaborate uh, and will uh, agree on terms that will make sense for everyone, no convention, no treaty will bring solutions. So maybe some states will eventually take a say, reasonable decision to ignore certain provisions of international law when so is really required to protect their national security and to prosecute serious and organized crime. Yeah, um, that's, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's getting that global cooperation is going to be really, really difficult. You know, just as you said, you know, political, you know, political issues, economic issues, things like that. One of the questions that comes up, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been in debates on this and conferences, you know, the industry talks about it. And that is right now, fundamentally, we don't have law enforcement across the world that is dedicated to that cyber realm. You know, whatever that means, you know, that the idea of international access to networks this i you know when somebody is violating someone's law in one country but they're sitting in a, in fact you know uh, in some of my presentations i talk about how there are organiza organized crime organizations that is an eight to five job that their job is to attack outside countries it's not illegal in their country to do that as long as they're not attacking their own country. They can do that. They have benefits. They have pay. It's an eight-to-five job. But we don't really have, you know, on an international scale, on a, on a worldwide scale, anybody to do enforcement on this concept that we have of the Internet or the cyber, uh, the cyber world. You know, I guess I'm not asking the question right. Um, it kind of comes back to that jurisdiction, but you know, really, it's more than that. Is do you think that the world or the internet should have an internet law enforcement? I guess that's really kind of the the fundamental question, regardless of how you what you call it and what you say. But have that law enforcement whose role is 
you know, things that happen on the internet, on networks that cross borders, that cross international jurisdictions, that cross kind of maybe Interpol on the cyber level or something like that. What's your what's your thoughts on that? I know that's kind of reaching out there, but uh, you know, what's your what's your thoughts? I think we should, and actually, it's an excellent point. However, unfortunately, I don't think that this is something that we will be able to uh, create within the next. Uh, 10 years, okay, because uh, in order to create such an intergovernmental body, you know, that will be uh, prosecuted, that will be investigating and prosecuting uh, cyber crime or let's say traditional crime that is abusing the benefits of the internet, we will need all states around the globe to agree on collaboration, on transparency. Uh, and I don't think that in 2023 that this is a viable option. So uh, I would perhaps just say that uh, I've been always, you know, advocating for providing additional support to law enforcement agencies because we see amazing efforts that are undertaken by Europol and Interpol to call to to coordinate, okay, uh, different operations against uh, different uh, underground networks uh, implicated into uh, child abuse, uh, drug trafficking, uh, and uh, different types of organized crime, but uh, they uh, do not have sufficient uh, funding as well as local uh, law enforcement units dedicated to digital forensic or prosecution of cybercrime. So I've been always advocating that uh, governments certainly need to prioritize, you know, giving more budgets to law enforcement agencies, uh, national and international ones, okay, because otherwise, uh, you know, uh, cyber law enforcement becomes virtually impossible because when you have cybersecurity companies that uh, can offer a digital forensic expert, you know, uh, a triple salary compared to what he or she can get in a state law enforcement agency, of course, it will be you know, almost impossible to hire talented experts. And uh, also, uh, we should bear in mind that we uh, need to have you know, cyber law experts, we need to have diplomats, we need to have you know, many uh, uh, you know, uh, professionals, not just you know, techies, but also you know, we need to have, for example, uh, lawyers who will be able to give a green light or at least uh, to say that this is kind of okay, even if it's not something that is clearly permitted under the law and uh, may have, you know, some consequences under the, the international law, for example, in this case, we can move forward. So we definitely need more funding for law enforcement agencies that uh, fight against uh, cyber crime on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're getting close on time. Um, I think we're about two minutes or so to the end of the show. But I, I wanted to ask you, you know, my big thing is helping people uh, grow in their skill sets and, and and learn, you know, all you know as much as they can about the topics that interest them, and especially in cybersecurity and privacy. But thinking about this in the future, maybe 10 years in the future, if you were going to, if someone came to you and says, hey, you know, this really fascinates me, what do I need to study now to to be that resource in 10 years from now, 
what would your uh, what would your what would your recommendation be? So, what kinds of things should people be studying right now, thinking ten years in the future about this stuff? I would probably say that uh, people should consider having several uh, sets of skills because I don't think that just being a programmer or cybersecurity expert will suffice in the next 10 years. So if you can have, for example, a degree in law and a cybersecurity degree, you will be extremely valuable and demanded person because I guess we'll see uh, increasing synergy of uh, cyber law, cybersecurity investigations. So try to be uh, diversified in terms of your skills. So if you uh, would like to study cybersecurity, that's great, and you should definitely do so. But consider taking uh, some classes dedicated to cyber law, to data protection law, because this will be certainly be a huge added value for your employer, for your future employment. So combining different areas of skill set, I think, is a key for your success. Yep, absolutely. Well, Dr. Kolonchenko, thank you so much for coming by and talking with us about this topic. This is a great topic. Um, I want to remind everyone that and Security for All can be found on the website and your favorite podcast uh, tools. So please join us every week, and we will be coming back next week with a, another great topic, another great speaker. Thank you, everybody. We appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events.